1: Made.
3: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is what
1: well, I learned
2: at 20 is
1: equity.
2: Welcome to another episode of Equity Made, it's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy. Ren, how's it going, bro?
4: I'm very good, Bryce. Good to be with you for another episode as we slowly make our way overseas.
2: Yes. So we're lucky enough to be joined by our second UK guest, and his
3: name is Andrew Hart. Andrew, welcome to the show. How you doing, mate? It's very formal introduction. I, I you <laughs> can call me Andy. Okay, Andy. <laughs> So
2: for those who are unaware of who Andy is, he's a financial advisor and founder of uh, Maven Advisor, which is a financial advice business. He's host of Maven Money, one of the UK's leading personal finance shows, and also a speaker on behavioral finance advice, which we're very keen to delve into a bit later on in the episode. As we said, today's show you know, it's all about finance, financial advice, and we're going to touch on some topics around investing skills, personal finance, and as I said, more particularly around that behavior and risk and decision-made type of things. So welcome, Andy. Before we get stuck into the meat of it, we always like to play a bit of a overrated, underrated game, throw a few indices and strategies at you to just get a bit of a vibe on how you think about markets and, and finance. You keen to get stuck in?
3: Yeah, let's do it. So
2: to kick things off, overrated or underrated, the FTSE 100.
3: I think it's probably overrated by some people. It's a bit of an odd index. It doesn't really perform well, you know, sort of long term, which is interesting because it, you know, confirms that, you know, you should have a globally well-diversified equity portfolio. So yeah, very specific to us in the UK. Yeah, the FTSE 100 is something that people do look at. uh, But as I said, it doesn't really perform that well, which is a little bit odd. It goes against sort of, you know, sort of general you know, risk metrics and asset allocation and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's probably overrated by the financial illiterates.
4: So Andy, speaking of uh, expanding and diversifying globally, overrated or underrated the NASDAQ 100?
3: Well, the NASDAQ 100 is a fascinating index. It's where, you know, all, all the juicy stuff comes from, isn't it? It's uh, it's boom and bust. It's the rock and roll index on, on the planet. So I don't know. It's probably underrated. People don't realize how mad the NASDAQ 100 is. So to your comments about the FTSE then, overrated or underrated diversification? Diversification is a financial superpower, so massively underrated. That falls into the camp of a free lunch. So globally well-diversified equity portfolios are where all your returns are going to come from. And uh, it's, as I say, it's a financial superpower to understand diversification.
4: So one thing that's been a hot topic on the equity in the equity mates community has been leverage and especially using leverage early in your investing journey uh so overrated or underrated using leverage
3: overrated specifically with uh, stock market investing
4: yes yes
3: okay so how would someone in practice use leverage so can you give me an example of it
4: Yeah, so there's a a few ways. There's obviously some internally leveraged products, some ETFs and stuff like that. And then also the use of margin loans are more traditional. But in Australia, we're also starting to see the rise of more mortgage like loans. So principal and interest loans to invest in not so much individual shares, but more fund managers.
3: Wow, interesting. Early on in your investing career, I'd say go all in on it. That's where you make mistakes. You know, an expert, someone who's made all the mistakes. So, you know, the younger you are coming into the investment, your investment sort of career, my advice is always break stuff, make mistakes, do silly things. Uh, Later on, don't. So, yeah, go all in on leverage. That's not advice, obviously.
4: (laughs) Yeah, everything in the show is our general advice. We don't know your specific. (laughs) Young
3: investors, go out there and make your mistakes. You're not looking for the optimal solutions. It will be very boring if you look for the optimal solutions there. You need to go out, break stuff, make your mistakes, an expert, someone who's made all the mistakes. So if there are odd leverage products that you're not going to sort of lose your shirt on it, but you're going to lose a few quid, it might be a valuable lesson. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm not aware of those products in the UK. I'm, I'm aware of some leverage ETFs and stuff. But again, for our family's life savings, we're obviously going to avoid them. You know, if it's just having a bit of a punt and a bit of fun money, then you know that's a different different question. But yeah, uh, leverage is uh, very dangerous when it comes to leverage in relation to sort of uh, property portfolios. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that. But again, it's a multi decade play. Hey, absolutely.
2: So a movement that I am passionate about for different reasons overrated or underrated the fire movement
3: the fire movement is brilliant massive fan as well this is quite unique and um, we have a movement that's peddling wisdom it's very rare that a movement and something new peddles wisdom they're always peddling information they're trying to sell things they're trying to overcomplicate things This is the opposite. The FIRE movement are trying to sort of demystify finance. They're trying to demystify financial and life success and they're peddling wisdom. This is very rare. So I'm a massive fan of the FIRE movement. In terms of overrated and underrated, I'd say it's probably underrated. And the principles are timeless and they've worked for a long period of time. And people that are embracing the FIRE movement are finding a lot of, you know, happiness in life and in their financial situation. So yeah, massive fan of the FIRE movement. They're peddling wisdom.
4: So Andy, one thing that we've been watching from the other side of the world has been Brexit, and we've all heard dire predictions about, you know, what a no-deal Brexit will do to the economy. So we're speaking to someone that's in the country and in the thick of it. So overrated or underrated, Brexit's impact on the British economy.
3: Massively overrated. Again, I don't want to make any predictions here. Anything can happen. Um, but, you know, the average investor makes 30-year investment decisions based on the last 30 minutes of news. You know, This <laughs> is an issue. Um, so we blissfully ignore Brexit in relation to its impact on our family's life savings over multi-decades. Again, I don't want to make any predictions, but yeah, Brexit on your long-term multi-decade investing should have absolutely minimal to no impact. You know, businesses will still sell things. You know, the stock market is a collection of real businesses that sell real things to real people. Just a a small amount of political admin is not really going to have a huge impact on real companies selling real things to real people. You know, you need to sort of intellectualize exactly what the stock market is. You know, people are are still going to be buying Christmas presents, new iPhones, going on holidays and eating out. The stock market is just a collection of businesses that we use every single day. So... Multi-decade impact of Brexit on your family's life savings should have absolutely no impact at all. And again, great wise financial advisors are the signal through the you know, negative noise. So yeah, Brexit, zero impact long-term on the family's life savings. As I say, it's a real company selling real things to real people. Interesting. And to close
2: it out, I'm not sure if you're a cricket fan, Andy, but overrated or underrated, the Australian cricketer who single-handedly won the most recent Ashes series, Steve Smith. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> cr- cr- cricket is my least uh you know uh interest on the i'm, I'm a massive rugby fan massive football fan so yeah <laughs> I, obviously i followed cricket in terms of the world cup when we you know did a, a performance uh, you know ben Stokes, wow uh, and again obviously he's uh, i think fourth ashes test so i'm loosely up to it but yeah well done lads we have a very uh uh, it, uh yeah we have a very uh explosive sports relationship, don't we, uh, and over the years. Well, I'm not going to bring up the uh, the thing that happened 16 years ago, so let's nudge on from that, lads. <laughs> the Rugby World Cup is what I'm referring to. We'll, uh,
4: we'll, we'll stick to stocks from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's leave it there.
3: <laughs> we have we had the 16-year anniversary, I think, three days. Yeah,
4: right. <laughs> so, Andy, one thing that we love to start with in these interviews where we speak to experts and, you know, people who have a long financial background. We love to go back to the beginning. So if you go back to the beginning of your personal financial journey, what was the story of your first investment and what did you learn from that experience? I think
3: it's not really an investment, but the time I thought it was. Um, So I started doing day trading at the age of 21 when I wasn't in the financial space, but I was an estate agent selling houses. And I was selling a house for a guy that seemed very financially successful. And when I spoke to him about what it is he did, he explained to me what it is that he did. And he was a day trader. So I spent a little bit of time with him and I lost, I think I lost all said and done about 7K, so 7,000 pounds. And this was 16 years ago. But again, I was young, so I could make my mistakes. There was lots of lessons learned from it i.e. day trading is not the way to make money. It's speculating and it's not investing. So I think that was my first foray into the financial markets, even though I was sort of buying relatively unknown sort of penny stocks and hoping that they shoot the lights out. Some did, some didn't. But in the end, you know, money management, I ended up, you know, a few quid down. But is that 7K lesson worth an exponential amount to me long term? It probably is. So, yeah, there's a lot of financial lessons that, in hindsight, prove to be more beneficial than they uh, originally are. So Andy, what would you say your
2: investing philosophy is now that you've perhaps moved away from the more speculative strategy of day trading?
3: Yeah. So my investment philosophy now, and I probably forever, I don't see me ever changing this, is investing in globally well-diversified equity portfolios with a slight tilt. That means I'm slightly more. Um, Exposed to these, a slight tilt towards value companies, small companies, and emerging market companies. So, globally well diversified equities with a tilt towards value, small, and emerging market companies.
4: I think that's a really interesting philosophy, and I imagine we're going to unpack some of those themes a little bit as we go. But just to close out your sort of personal journey to get to where you are today. You've obviously taken quite an interest in finance and financial education in particular, being a financial advisor by trade and being the host of Maven Money, one of the UK's biggest personal finance shows. Some things I imagine are quite similar between Australia and the UK and I imagine some things are quite different. So what was it that sort of sparked your interest in finance and educating people about their finances?
3: Good question. It sort of happened by accident, as in, I was in my early twenties, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I got a job as an estate agent, so selling houses. I then got interested in how people funded buying these houses, and that was my introduction to the mortgage market. I then was fascinated about mortgages, and I sort of consumed everything I could, and then that naturally led me to the wider world of personal finance, so investments, pensions, etc. And then I'm just quite passionate high in life. So I try to go into subjects in in as much detail as I can. And I realized I was quite good at, I suppose, simplifying complex financial matters. Uh, You know, I'm still learning as it were. I think I've been through my apprenticeship stage. So I'm now sort of entering my mastery stage. But a lot of stuff with finance is, you know, there's no shortcuts. So for example, with investment management, you have to learn as much as you can, which is a shed load you then need to unlearn 99% of it, and then you're left with the 1% essence. And there's no shortcut to get to the 1%, so it's like a lot of stuff. You have to learn it all, and then unlearning is the key skill, is what I'm trying to get at here. So I'm quite good at unlearning. I can learn a lot of stuff and then I can disregard the unimportant. And then I can, as I say, strip it right back to the what I believe is, is the essence of what I'm trying to sort of study. So yeah, and then I've just naturally sort of helped more people. Um, I've helped financial advisors understand what it is that we do. And uh, obviously I look after end consumers via Maven Advisor and now I'm trying to spread the message via Maven Money. But Maven Money is very much focused on sort of the behaviour around money. You know, it's all well and good having all the information in the world if you're not going to implement it, if you're not going to stick to a plan, if you're not going to change your behaviour you're not going to be financially successful. And a lot of times people can't even intellectualize their future self. So they're constantly in the current state of mind. They can't think, you know, a few decades ahead. That again, is a skill that people sort of need to develop, you know, an appreciation of their future self. Yeah. So I think that's loosely answered your question, but yeah, I'm very much uh, passionate about personal finance. Again, just to mention it, sometimes financial advisors, they, you know, help a small bunch of sort of wealthy families, you know, increase their wealth, you know, which is noble in itself, but you know, they feel like there's a bit of a sort of uh, a bigger purpose. So that's why I'm really, really passionate about trying to turn people from financial illiterates, which we are all born financial illiterates, to financial literates. And that is a journey that we all go on. And it's not easy, you know, why should it be? But yeah, that's my purpose trying to change people from financial illiterates to financial literates. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great purpose. And I think in the UK and Australia, probably across the world, there's There's such a need for that and there's such an opportunity for people to take more control of their finances. So it's a great purpose. One thing that you you mentioned there that I'm really interested to unpick a bit was about the skill of unlearning things because we're faced with this fire hose of information that comes from the internet around more information on any one single stock than you could ever know or need to know let alone everything around the economy and the markets and there's a real skill in being able to as you say unlearn and focus on the important information and boil things down to the critical details so is that a skill that you developed over time and how did you go about refining it and are there tips and tricks that other people can pick up around how they unlearn that unnecessary information?
3: It's a good question and as you're asking it, I'm just trying to think how have I done this? I'm quite impatient and I'm quite lazy, which over the years this has proved to be a a positive skill. So because of my laziness, I'm very organized. So I'd never like to have things that I can't find quickly. And because I'm, as I say, quite impatient, I want to almost like get to the essence of stuff quite quickly. So I can consume information quite quickly and then I can quite easily discard what I believe is unimportant. I also ask questions. You know, I'm not I'm not scared to say, sorry, I don't understand what you mean there. Can you please explain that? Whereas a lot of people just sort of hear stuff and they, they, they won't question it. So I don't know. I'm quite good at questioning things. I'm quite impatient, which inadvertently these sort of skills oddly have been a sort of benefit when it comes to sort of getting to the essence of a subject. And a lot of stuff is quite confusing initially, isn't it? You know, investing in the stock market, you know, pensions, investments, your tax. But as I say, if you're just quite inquisitive and you don't mind, you know, asking more and more questions, then, you know, you sort of get, get to the essence. But yeah, I don't know how you would train your unlearning muscle. Just being aware of it is is a start. As I said, investment management is learning as much as you can, which is a shed load. It will take years And then unlearning and then you're left with the essence. When people say, I've I've nailed investment management, this is what you should do. You know, let's say you're advising, you know, somebody's never done it before. You say, Right, this is the one fund you buy, it's 70% equity global equities and 30% global bonds. It's buy and hold, invest and forget, don't do anything else about it. It's very hard for that person to implement that, even though that's the correct thing to do, but that's the shortcut. They sometimes need to go on the journey themselves to then realize what the shortcut is. So a lot of people say, Oh yeah, I've nailed investment management. They don't say, It took me eight years of making my mistakes. Now I've nailed investment management. I'm left with the essence. You know, they they sometimes forget the journey that they've gone on and the information they've consumed and the books that they've read to then end up with the essence. So yeah, frequently in life, there's, there, there's no shortcut to get to the essence of a subject. You have to learn it all, then unlearn it. We're sort of going deep into the unlearning subject. I've not looked into it in terms of from an academic point of view or anything, but the smartest people out there are the ones that can unlearn quite successfully is, you know, from my anecdotal evidence, as it were. Andy,
2: one of the things that really stood out when we were researching for this interview was your views on the impact that behavior has when it comes to to your financial success. And with that, a lot of your work also seems pretty focused on managing risk, both behavioural risk and market risk, and you know, making smart financial decisions. You said at the start of the show that, you know, we should go all in on well, think about going all in on leverage and as a young investor, learning from your, your mistakes is is important. Before we dive into both behavioural and market risk, can you perhaps define what Risk means to you. It's it's different to to everyone, and how we should think about risk as a young investor.
3: Sure, I've done a lot of work on risk, so I'm I'm hopefully uh, well positioned to answer this for you. Risk is one of those words that means nothing out of context. It's a little bit like the word love. You know, I love bananas. I love the weekends. I love my iPhone. You know, it doesn't mean anything on on its own. And the word risk is used far too frequently when it comes to finances. So we need to unpack risk and define what it is. So I believe risk comes in three different flavors when it comes to your investing and investing capital and your family's life savings. So there's three risks, I believe. The word risk is just used too frequently and it's not defined. So there's three flavors of risk, Uh, the most dangerous flavor of risk is loss of capital, permanent loss of capital. If you bet on the horses, there's a high chance of permanent loss of capital. If you invest in one single uh, company stock, there's a high chance of permanent loss of capital. So, Loss of capital is the most dangerous flavor of risk. The next most dangerous flavor of risk is inflation, which we could summarize as loss of purchasing power. So, The most dangerous loss of capital, the, the second most dangerous is inflation, which is loss of purchasing power over time. And the least dangerous flavor of risk that the one that most people are referring to when they talk about risk is volatility. And we could summarize volatility as loss of behavior. So we have three flavors of risk loss of capital, loss of purchasing power, loss of behavior. The one that everyone focuses on is volatility. The whole reason for your long term returns is because of volatility. And it shouldn't be feared. It is embraced by the financial literate. So loss of capital is the most dangerous flavor of risk. That's the real financial dragon that we're trying to fight, along with inflation. Whereas volatility is baked into, you know, global equities long term and it's to be expected. Yeah, so that's my loose thoughts on risk. You need to unpack risk and define it. And there's three flavors of risk loss of capital, loss of purchasing power, loss of behavior.
2: And do those three flavors of risk in in that order apply? equally to someone who's just starting their investing journey as they might to someone who is later on down the track heading towards
3: retirement? Well, loss of capital is a big concern. You know, we just mentioned about, you know, if you uh, bought a leveraged product, a high chance of loss of capital doing that. Yeah, inflation is a concern long term. You know, inflation is the slow, pervasive, impactful force that is applied, you know, inflation can either be your best friend or worst enemy, depending on what side of it you're on. But yeah, just starting out for, let's say, the people listening to this, inflation isn't your main driver. You know, it's, it's embracing correct financial behaviors, it's paying yourself first, it's controlling your expenses, it's not buying shiny uses, things that you can't afford. You know, if we're talking about the younger investor, but when it comes to someone who's, let's say, 50 or 60 and they're slowing down and they've got a pot of capital that they need to, that needs to support them for the rest of their lives. And inflation is the key thing that they need to be focusing on. So loss of capital just means don't do anything stupid with your money that you're going to lose it all.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: I Lucy mentioned earlier on, you know, make your mistakes when you're young because they're, you know, invaluable lessons inflation is it's always present but obviously over time it has more and more of an impact and volatility you know we can we can talk about investment market volatility but again that is you know baked into the equity markets because it's uh, you know people that drive these markets over time there's business cycles and there's equity cycles but again you just need to know these numbers going in see I don't know if I've Completely answer that question there, but yeah. Any further on that?
4: I'd love to pick up the third one because I think loss of capital people intuitively understand, and inflation is something that, as you start to understand the markets and the economy and money, you understand that as the as inflation rises, if you're not earning a return on your money, you're losing purchasing power. Volatility yep. is a really interesting one for me to discuss with you, Andy, because volatility, as you said, is used in a, by a lot of investment professionals as a proxy for risk. But I'm really interested to unpack why you see volatility as a risk to long-term wealth creation. Yeah, I guess st- let's start there. Do, do you see it as a risk long-term or is it a more short-term risk?
3: It's an ever-present risk and we don't know when it's going to rear its head. So when people are talking about investment market volatility, they're not talking about the investment markets aggressively rising, So when there's extreme volatility to the upside, what do they call this? They call this the good times. They don't call this investment market volatility. When an investment portfolio or the markets have risen by 22% last year, they don't call it a lot of volatility last year. They call it the good times. When the markets are declining, that's when they use the word volatility. Frequent, that's what I see anyway. So volatility is only a concern on the way down. And, you know, generally global equities have 75% of the years are positive and 25% of the years are negative, generally over, you know, sort of long-term numbers we're talking about here. Investment market volatility is once you get your head around this and realize that it's, you know, a friend of the long-term investor, it's the whole reason for the equity premium... You know, it changes your mindset. And volatility is a friend for the saving client. So if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and you're investing every single month, when the markets are down, obviously you should be happy. You should smile from ear to ear. Even though the financial press and the news are shouting that the markets are down, it's a bad thing. It's a great thing for the person that's doing their monthly investing. When the markets are down, I'm over the moon. You know, as my clients say, oh, the markets are down. And it's like, Yeah, but you're investing every month. This is a good thing for you. Stop looking at your capital and look at what your contributions are doing. It's slightly different if you're just drawing down on your capital and you're in in your sort of spending stage of life. But... Getting your head around investment market volatility and understanding that it will come, it will happen, you know, knowing roughly the numbers, 75% of the years are positive, 25% of the years are negative. Yeah, volatility is the key thing to get your head around. You mentioned there,
2: Andy, that volatility makes people make dumb decisions. Sure. So let's let's talk about, I guess, how to stop making those dumb decisions. something that you've set up is a real focus on using behavior as the driver for success, and that's humans under management you use that to promote this this idea. Can you give us a bit of a quick intro into what humans under management is? And then we'll, we'll jump into some behavioral questions.
3: Sure. So humans under management is a play on words. In the financial advice profession business, we all sort of refer to something called assets under management as in the amount of money that we look after. But You know, as an investment professional, you have a bit of an epiphany in your career that you think, ah, you know, the money's the easy bit. The owners of the money are where all my professional uh, troubles are going to come from. So it was a play on words. I decided to launch a brand called Humans Under Management, a play on assets under management. You know, we don't manage, you know, the money. We manage the owners of the money as as professional advisors. And I put on a, a conference dedicated to behavioral financial advice. As investment professionals, we go to, you know, many, many conferences throughout the year. And there was usually sort of 10 speakers and one was speaking about behavioral finance. And for me, that was like the good stuff. So I decided to put on a conference focused on the good stuff, which is behavioral financial advice. Yes, you come into the profession of financial advice thinking you manage money. About a decade into it, you know, boom, light bulb goes goes off. And you think, ah, you know, managing money is dreadfully, dreadfully, dreadfully easy, but very, very important. Managing the owners of the money is where all my problems are going to come from. You know, you don't get a frantic phone call from an investment. You don't get an email from a pension. You know, it's always the owners of the money where all of our sort of professional issues come from. So, yeah, it's just trying to get people to make better long-term financial decisions. Yeah, all around their sort of behavior fascinating we'll have to pop in when we're over in the uk to one of these conferences
1: or <laughs> we'll
4: start the australian chapter
3: i've got my next one in a week's time yeah so it's uh, full-on at the moment yeah it, it's it's sort of um, I, I consume a guy in the u.s called nick murray he's a sort of financial advisor coach to uh, he's a coach to financial advisors he's an ex-financial advisor so yeah i've just been consuming a, a lot of his stuff so a lot of my Sort of material is sort of spawned from what he's sort of taught me, but yeah, it's fascinating. I believe we're moving into a sort of a behavioral finance revolution. You know, we've had investments for 50, 60, 80, however many years people have been managing people's money. We've had a financial planning movement for about 20 years, or 10 years, or five years, depending on what, sort of uh, where, where, where you sort of want to lay that marker. And now we're moving into, yeah, the behavioral financial advice. You know, clients don't make you know rational decisions. they frequently do the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and we're here to you know help them with the three wrongs yeah it's uh, it's all behavioral and it's all yeah your habits and you know sticking to the plan and being consistent avoiding big, big mistakes yeah
2: we noticed on your website that you say media's focus is on selection and timing which has never been proven to work we know that success will be driven by planning and controlling natural misconceptions and biases. What is one of the more common bad behaviors or biases that you see people consistently struggling with in their investing and sort of finance journey?
3: Yeah, uh, we where to start with this one. Um, so behavioral finance is obviously a, a, a whole movement. Behavioral economics uh, is, I suppose, it, it, its parent. What are the key things uh, we see people uh, in action? Um, not setting up the right insurances, incorrect investments, panic, euphoria, mental accounting. You know, there's just, it's just endless. I think there's something now, 188 biases uh, on the sort of matrix. And we're there just to nudge the client on track. You know, I'm constantly just on the alert for the next thing that they're going to say that is, you know, slightly incorrect. You know, people don't think they're irrational. You know, they come to a professional and say, I want you to manage my money and sort of focus over there. All of my attention is on that individual. You know, they don't think that, you know, they make sub-optimal decisions around their finances. So it's a delicate subject with a lot of clients, you know, and they're not coming to see us for behavioral coaching. They come to see us because they've got, you know, uh, they've just been divorced. They've just inherited money, you know, money's in flow. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a delicate sort of situation we need to sort of navigate
4: so for, for those of us that have at least some of those bad behaviors or cognitive biases, and I think that's probably is everyone, um, what are some of the, the best tools or best ways people can confront these biases or, or at least just be aware of which ones they're exhibiting?
3: Yeah, awareness is the key thing here. All of us struggle with you know cognitive biases and uh, sort of uh, incorrect behavior in, in everything we do. Um, you know, so, so nobody is a, a complete uh, econ, as uh, Richard Thaler calls it, uh, makes uh, you know, optimal decisions. So the frequently I am saying to my clients, they ask a question and for years there are a few answers to the question and we just give a couple of answers. Whereas now I separate it out. So they'll ask a question and I'll say, OK, there's two answers to this. There's the financial answer. And there's the emotional answer. And I'll say, right, the financial answer is you should do this. And that's what a, you know, financial robot would do. And I say, because you're human, you're probably going to follow this course of action. And this is the emotional answer. But just so you know, we're separating those two out. There's the financial answer that this is the right thing for you to do. But this is the emotional answer. Very simple example of this is do I pay my mortgage off? Do I overpay my mortgage? Let's say the mortgage interest rate in the UK is very low at the moment, and it's let's like, say one percent. It's basically free money. Or let's call it one and a half percent, or even two percent. And in the markets, again, a financial robot knows that they can get far better returns in the in, in the equity markets than they could by paying their mortgage off early. But emotionally, it feels great to say, "Ah, I've cleared my mortgage off." Or I always told, again, money's a story you tell yourself. I've always told myself I'm going to clear my mortgage by fifty-five. Okay, you've always told yourself that's an emotional story. Financially, it's a bad idea. If we can't unpack that, then we can't move forward. So financially, you shouldn't pay your mortgage off early and you should invest in the markets. Emotionally, that will feel a bit, a little bit tough for you. So you're probably going to pay your mortgage off early because you've always told yourself you're going to clear it by 55. And emotionally, it will feel great when you get that statement saying you owe us zero pounds. Financially, it might not be a good idea, but at least we can separate the two out. So I'm constantly saying to clients, there's a financial answer that's this, and then there's the emotional answer that's that. And I think it's a good way for them to sort of think about the sort of different options that they have.
2: Is that why you're such a fan of FIRE? Because it seems to be more of a behavioral piece than, than anything?
3: Yes. FIRE, as I said, is deconstructing financial and life success and peddling wisdom. So, again, they're all in on equities. They are not fans of multi asset investing. You know, multi asset investing is a marketing ploy that's been devised by investment companies, which are marketing companies that happen to be in the investment business. So, yeah, multi asset investing is not for the smart investor. No, the returns come from global equities, which is a a productive asset that provides a rising income and rising capital value over time. So that again is a is another example. You're not going to get the fire movement sort of peddling multi-asset funds. No, they're not. They're peddling global equity funds and going all in on it. Um, I believe in the US, it's VTSAX or bust, as in that's all they go for. They even know the stock ticker of the correct fund to invest in. Now that is. Finance deconstructed and wisdom in all its glory. That when they talk about investing, they talk about the the ticker of the fund that everyone in the US should be investing in, which is the VTSAX. Interesting.
4: So, Andy, I want to pick up on something you said there because you know we're we're new to the UK and we're we're going to try and stir up some controversy amongst the UK guests. So. Um, <laughs> So, another UK financial expert that we've spoken to is Pete Matthew, who um, I believe you're friends with. Yeah, good mate of mine, good mate. So, you said there that you're not a fan of multi-asset investment strategies, and Pete is a big fan of passive multi-asset investment strategies. So I guess the big controversial question is, hate wrong.
3: Buffett and Munger are not fans of multi-asset investing. Buffett and Munger say all your returns come from global equities, which is a productive asset. It provides a rising income and rising capital over time. A lot of the other assets that are sprinkled into multi-asset investing portfolios are not productive assets. They don't provide a rising income, rising capital value over um, over multi decades history being our guide. So those who know what they're doing, uh, 100% global equities, which provide a rising income and rising capital value over multi decades, history being our guide the other productive asset is physical property, which provides a rising income through the rent and rising capital value over multi decades So I believe they're the two most productive assets that smart financial literates should be investing in and to summarize them global equities are business and physical property is bricks. So business and bricks provide all the returns you need through rising income and rising capital value over multi-decades. So, yep, I'm not a fan of multi-asset investing. Some of my client portfolios have fixed income in them, but that's an emotional asset class and not a financial asset class. That's an emotional asset class and not a financial asset class. I'm invested 100% in global equities because I understand this game well. And then separately, I'm investing in physical property through bricks. So I'm all in on 100% global equities and physical property breaks, the rest is noise.
2: Love that. Unfortunately,
3: Sydney property prices
2: over here mean that Alec and I are not in property. Sorry, because you're saying they're we so can expensive.
3: Because they're so expensive. Sorry. Yeah, ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and obviously, the property market will have cycles and it's a mini business. and It's a high hassle factor. You know, I know all that as well. But yeah, that's just to, to summarize. It's all about finding productive asset classes, which is what Buffett talks about all the bloody time. He says, what do you want to own? Farmland or a block of gold? If farmland is a productive asset, you know, it's a business, et cetera, it produces yield, it's capital yield and stuff. Block of gold does absolutely nothing. That's the extreme example of it. Charlie Munger even adds to the story and says, imagine if you owned a block of gold, you'd even have to employ an army to look after it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: I think it, it, it's for those yeah. two reasons,
3: you know, income
2: and, and rise in capital that equities are so appealing to us
3: yeah the smell test of is this a real asset class and is this productive does it provide a rising income over multi decades history being our guide does it provide rising capital value over multi decades history being our guide global equities physical property it's a tick in the box there the rest you know there's it's, it's it's arguable um fixed income is a bit of an odd one you forgot bitcoin andy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, <Bitcoin. laughs> yeah sorry that goes just to hammer this home for younger listeners bitcoin goes into the bucket of what we call what's working now so you need to be very clear that things that are working now are to be avoided yes you can shoot the lights out over the short term but that goes into the bucket of what's working now we say to our clients we're going to invest your family's life saving in your family's life savings into things which have always worked anything which is working now we put that in the that's working now bucket and avoid it so cryptocurrency cannabis stocks car park forestry all of this crap was working now and we avoid it we do things and we invest your family's life savings in things which have always worked here is that okay with you which is global equities the rest It's the most dangerous financial item you can invest in. It's something called what's working now. It's a 10 out of 10 on the risk scale, the informed risk scale. So anything like that goes into the what's working now bucket. But when you're young and you're 22 and all your mates are buying cryptocurrency and then cannabis stocks, you're going to have to just get involved in it. It's just the social pressure. It's just a a hodgepodge of, you know, behavioral, you know, mistakes. But over time, you become wise and an expert is someone who's made all the mistakes there's generally no shortcut to to wisdom so again I'm not advocating of just blowing yourself up and squandering all your money but you're going to probably do it anyway so I'm just <laughs> saying it's not the end of the world if you do um, because as I say you've got years to recover bad financial mistakes late on in your working career are an absolute disaster setting up a business too late in the game when you're sixty two and you've got four, you know avoid all that that's like madness. So yeah, make your mistakes early, make mistakes young. I've made a shed load. I'm sure you guys have made a shed load, but this is all just part of the the game of being a human and becoming you know, wise over time.
2: Love that. That's um, some awesome advice. Speaking of making mistakes, let's move on to the sort, sort of the final piece of this conversation that's around making smart decisions. We noticed that you said you want to help people make smart, unconventional decisions countercultural financial
3: decisions
2: (laughs) why should people make unconventional financial decisions
3: well yeah this boils down to you know human nature is a failed investor most people are not financially successful most people who reach the age of sort of 65 that have a few quid and have an expensive house they've done nothing basically they've put very little effort into it they've just relied on rising markets whereas the ones that really go for it and you know Controlling your expenses, you know, living within your means—we, it's tripe, but you know, it's it's correct and it works. So, massively controlling your expenses and knowing that. Money is a story you tell yourself. You know, I've taken this from Seth Godin. It's the best definition of money I've found. Money is the story you tell yourself. And this is life. People just drag these stories around forever with themselves. I'm good with money. I'm bad with money. My parents were good with money. My parents were bad with money. I deserve this um, expensive item. I don't deserve the expensive item. Yeah, I can justify 200 quid on a pair of headphones. Everything is a story you tell yourself. So ruthlessly controlling your expenses and aggressively investing every month just a little bit more than you're comfortable investing and continuing to nudge that up as your income goes up up, up over time, you'll be way more financially successful than sort of 99% of the people that you know. But you have to commit to this. You have to, you know, change your behaviours, ruthlessly control your expenses and aggressively invest in the markets. They're the two things I can recommend in terms of unconventional, because as I say, most people are failed financially. Um, and even people that, as I say, that have reached sixty-five, that have an expensive house, for some random place in Sydney, and have a few hundred thousand dollars saved—if you unpack what they've actually done to achieve that—it's very little. They've just—they've re- just relied on rising property prices and rising investment markets. The ones that have really shot the lights out, the ones that have got, you know, millions and are way more than the average, because they've committed to it over a multi-decade sort of time frame. So, yeah, that's that. It's just. The heavy lifting should be your investment contributions, not the markets. The market return will come. The heavy lifting should be your your investing and how much you're committing to it every month.
4: So, Andy, one thing I'm interested in when we talk about making smart decisions is... Your thoughts on the role of stock picking v investing in sort of broad based index funds? Sure. What generally is the the smarter decision of the two?
3: When it comes to serious money, your family's life savings, and you're at a certain age where you're really contemplating hitting financial independence, invest in globally well diversified index funds. When it comes to learning the investment markets. Just buy individual stocks, buy some random companies that you're interested in, and just follow that story of it. Yeah, you can shoot the lights out, get a 10x, 100x, a 300x return, or you can lose all your money. As I say, I'm saying, use it as a learning experience and just doing something which is quite daunting and, you know, buying individual stocks, et cetera. So if you're very, 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 very young, buy some individual companies because the 10% compounded return, you know, sounds incredibly dull to people in their sort of twenties, you know, go out there, as I say, make mistakes, set up businesses, ship projects, you know, the financial stuff can come later on. You can really commit to it at a later stage. So when it comes to serious money, you know, all of my money, all of my clients' money, it's invested in globally well diversified index asset class portfolios. when it comes to just learning how the markets work and having a bit of fun and learning and having an experience of learning rather than doing the optimal thing, then you can buy individual stocks. as i say, it's not advice, but yeah, it's uh, it's not the end of the world if you do it. keep banging on about, you know, an expert someone who's made all the mistakes. so yeah, go make your mistakes basically.
2: In one of your podcast episodes, you discuss investor mistakes during a downturn. What are a couple of things that we should do when the market turns as opposed to things that we shouldn't be doing? I guess it's the same thing, really. It's just the opposite.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I put a a whole thing together about this. It just comes down to not being surprised. You know, not being surprised when the next deep temporary decline comes, because it is going to come. And again, it's known the numbers. 75% of the years generally are positive in the stock market. 25% of the years are generally negative. It also comes down to the individual. So there's three types of people in the world, and two of these people can be successful investors, and one of these can't. And there's nothing we can do about this. So these are the three people in the world. You have the pessimists, you have the optimists, and you have the oblivionists. Two of these can be successful investors, the optimists and the oblivionists. The optimists, because they're constantly you know, optimistic about the world and they're not getting panicked all the time. Oblivionists don't have a clue what's going on. And again, they're great investors and they're, they're also great people. Pessimists, there's sometimes no help in them. You can't do anything with them. They're constantly looking for the next end of the world scenario. So the failed investors... of a pessimistic persuasion and there's nothing really we can do about that it's very hard to tell who's a pessimist who's an optimist the oblivionist we can sort of work out after a while but yeah pessimist and optimist it's uh yeah three types of people in the world
4: Andy we as I mentioned before we spoke to Pete and one of the questions we got from listeners that we asked him and um I'd love to get your thoughts on the same question. so The listener question was, what would be the main pillars of a portfolio you would establish for a 22-year-old to add over time? Now, I think we've touched on some of the key themes throughout this episode, but it might be a nice way to sort of bring them together. So how would you answer this listener's question?
3: Okay, so the boring, obvious answer is invest in a globally well-diversified equity index fund. But no, I'm saying go out there, make your mistakes, ship projects, start businesses, be inquisitive, learn as much as you can. So I'm sort of trying to, I'm, I'm diverting from the perfect portfolio for a 22-year-old to just switching it up to being a bit more of a, a mindset thing. And, you know, as I say, going out there and shipping projects and doing stuff, you know, that's, that's when you, that you're going to learn far more from that than getting a, an 11.9% return from your portfolio last year. I mean, it means absolutely nothing at that young age. To be totally honest, so yeah, I'm sort of flipping it up and saying, you know, learn as much as you can, ship projects, uh, you know, think about business opportunity, you know, just I'm thinking from it from that point of view, which I know doesn't answer your 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 question. As I say, the boring answer is a a globally well diversified equity portfolio.
4: Yeah, no, I like it, and I think you know, for a 22 year old out there, it's probably a lot more exciting to go out there and make mistakes and take risks and. Who knows that might engender a love of finance that keeps them growing, keeps them going for the rest of their life. So exactly,
3: exactly. I suppose it's it's know your audience when it comes to financial advice. You know, as a, I'm a professional financial advisor, you know, which you would generally think is quite a boring chap. You know, you wouldn't want, want to sit next to me in a, in a sort of dinner party. But we need to, you know, be a bit more, you know, exciting when it comes to these sort of things and not just come up with the boring answers all the time. You know, Life's about experiencing new things and and learning along the way. As I say, optimal portfolios, they can come at a later point, but certainly at the beginning of your journey, just consume as much as you can, learn as much as you can, listen to as many podcasts and then make mistakes. Don't do mistakes that you can't recover from you know, like do anything, any fraud or anything like crazy, you know, but, but, but do like small money <laughs> mistakes along the way, business ideas, shit projects. I mean, we've never had, uh, you know, the opportunity we have now with, you know, the sort of flat world and uh, the resources that are so simple. And, you know, we're talking on some free software and we'll get it edited from somewhere very cheap, you know, projects can be done very, very, easily these days and it's that always being sort of held back and on that I think you're going to ask me about some books so while I'm talking about that there is a great book about this called The War of Art and it's my number one book I recommend anyone to read all about fight resistance inside you and and not sort of being put off by launching new projects so massive fan about launching projects and doing things and having an impact basically so that's my one of my books but I know you guys might have any some other questions on that.
4: Yeah well you've flagged it there so we'll get into the final three questions that we finish up every interview with that we ask all of our guests. And as you flagged there, the first one is about books, be they investing or otherwise. So aside from the one you mentioned there, are there any other books that you consider must reads?
3: The must read for personal finance success and on the fire theme is a book by JL Collins called Simple Path to Wealth. I believe that's the best book on personal finance. And again, it's heavily focused on the fire movement. So Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. And the other book I said is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I've read pretty much most of the investment books, most of the business books, most of the marketing books. I'm a massive fan of Seth Godin, so I'll, I'll mention him. I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for Seth Godin in my life He's come out with, I think, 19 books, has a daily podcast as as a really smart cookie. So I recommend reading as much as you can about Seth Godin. Sorry, Seth Godin books. Ones to recommend Purple Cow uh, and Tribes. They're both brilliant. And then any others that sort of take your fancy. He's got a new book out called, I think, called This Is Marketing. It's all about being a category of one and shipping projects. So again, there's a sort of theme there, you know, fighting this fear, imposter syndrome. And just getting out there and uh, and doing stuff. So yeah, they're my sort of book recommendations: The War of Art, Simple Path to Wealth, and as many books as you can read um, from Seth Godin.
4: Nice one. We'll um, include those in the show notes so um, listeners can find them easily.
3: Thanks. Um,
4: the, the second question that we always like to ask is: What is your go-to source for investing information?
3: God, oof. Oof. Everywhere, I'd say <laughs> I have. Uh, <laughs> I have a client newsletter that I produce every month um, via Maven Advisor. And I also have an advisor newsletter that I issue every month via Humans Under Management. So I'm constantly on the lookout for articles, podcasts, videos, books. I also get sent quite a lot. I find out a lot of stuff randomly on Twitter. So newsletters are decent. And I think we're sort of having a bit of resurgence uh, around newsletters. Twitter, yeah, Twitter again is a good place. Other podcasts I listen to, I'm just thinking on the finance side, it's quite tricky. Where do you guys get your financial information from? What's uh, what's the go-to places?
4: I think I think for me, uh, there's obviously your uh, traditional news sources. The Australian Financial Review is the big one in Australia. But I think the internet has just opened up so much, you know, sort of crowdsourced information. Financial Twitter is great. Yeah. Uh, financial Reddit is great. And then uh, there's a bunch of podcasts and things like that. Nice. Yeah, it's just there's, it's it's almost a question of where don't you go these days, rather. Than <laughs> yeah, where exactly. Do you
3: go? <laughs> um, because I'm a content creator, I do a weekly podcast. You know, similar to you guys, I'm always on the lookout for stories. So obviously, clients say say things to me, advisors say things to me. I read stuff about it in sort of uh, our trade press. So I still read three magazines a week. That are sort of um, industry or, or profession focused, yeah. And just I just get a lot of newsletters actually. So yeah, I'm consuming a lot of newsletters that usually aggregate a lot of them together. That's what, actually what I'm trying to do with Humans Under Management newsletter. It's for professional advisors. I'm trying to collate the mess that is you know financial information out there and sort of uh, d- do it as a as, as a weekly as a weekly drip. I still I still find books are great. So I'm consuming a lot on Audible, and again, they're not really finance books, but finance related. So you know business. Model marketing and uh, yeah, Lucy finance. Yeah. I consume a lot on Audible.
4: Nice one. And then the last question that we generally finish the interview with, if you think back to your younger self, when you were just starting out your investing journey, what piece of advice would you give your younger self?
3: Uh, Specifically in relation to investing?
4: I don't think I... Whatever you want.
3: Yeah. I'd just say do more, you know, the classic Casey Neistat thing, just do more, you know, ship more, break more things. Challenge more stuff. You know, when you're young, that's, that's what it's for. You should come into whatever business you're coming into and think that everything is wrong uh, until proven otherwise without sort of being an arsehole. So yeah, just do more, I suppose. Awesome.
2: Well, Andy, I don't know about anyone else listening or, or you, Ren, but I'm feeling quite energized after that um, conversation. <laughs> it was, um, it was awesome to delve into some, some things that we haven't discussed on here before and some things that we have, but have always been important to revisit, especially around the behavioral side of things when it comes to investing and also understanding loss of capital, inflation, volatility. And I loved the money. Is a story you tell yourself something that I'll certainly be thinking about how that applies to me. So, thank you for joining us on the show. Really appreciate your time, Andy. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, where would be the best place for them to head?
3: I'll just mention two outlets. So, Maven Advisor, M A V E N A D V I S E R. So, Maven Advisor, both E E. On Twitter, and I have a podcast called Maven Money, where we unpack behavioural finance sort of life, personal finance sort of topics. It's always interesting being interviewed and asked questions. It's like some of the questions you've asked me, I've done like a whole show on it. And then when you ask a question about it, you're like, how can I condense this into sort of... Three or four <laughs> sentences. It's very tricky being on the uh, on the receiving on end of the this. Receiving end. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, guys. You're you're prolific in your podcast output. Uh, doing two a week. You're you're making us we- weekly uh, weekly launches look uh, Mickey
2: Mouse. It's good fun. It's good fun. We wouldn't be doing it if we certainly didn't enjoy it. And uh, luckily enough, we, we love it. So, And these conversations make it all that much more rewarding and enjoyable. So thank you. I'm sure we'll keep in touch and perhaps get you on at a later point in time, perhaps when Brexit finally goes through or Bitcoin goes th- <laughs> through the roof, we can chat about those.
3: <laughs> yeah. What's the next mania? There'll be something around the corner. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: Equity Mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.
1: Equity